You're listening to the Silicon Valley Podcast. On today's show, we sit down with James Ehrlich, who is a serial entrepreneur in the areas of technology, media technology, and clean tech. Founder of RenGen Villages, entrepreneur in residence at Stanford University Center for Compassion, Altruism, Research, and Education, and faculty at Singularity University. On today's show, we talk about how is tech leading towards a sustainable future for all? What is the wood wide web? How is digital twins used in the modeling villages of the future? What technology will be used for completely self-reliant cities? And what is it like to be the first ever entrepreneur in residence at Stanford? This and much more on today's episode of Silicon Valley. Welcome to the Silicon Valley podcast with your host, Sean Flynn, who interviews famous entrepreneurs, venture capitalists, and leaders in tech. Learn their secrets and see tomorrow's world today. James, thank you for taking the time today to be on Silicon Valley. Thanks for having me. Now, James, you've had a fascinating career. And what really amazed me is the start of it was actually at Lucas Films. Could you talk a little bit about this? It goes back to when I was actually in New York and growing up on Long Island and New York City and Manhattan. And I was involved in lighting design and working for rock and roll bands doing their lighting. And this was the transition time between analog and digital systems. And at that moment, I started to learn about programming and software programming. And I was particularly interested in video games and video game design. So when I finished my undergrad degree at New York University, I moved out to San Francisco, Silicon Valley. And instead of moving into the valley itself, I moved north to the North Bay, to Marin County. And we're working with some fantastic folks who were working with George Lucas, Industrial Light and Magic, and LucasArts, and decided to start a software company in the early 1990s, building tools for digital effects for motion pictures, as also doing video games and tools for video game development. And after Lucasfilms, you had your own TV show that was syndicated nationally. Could you talk a little bit about the show and your guerrilla marketing tactics to grow this phenomenon? As I said, up in Marin County in Northern California, and it was just a really beautiful place. And I was surrounded by these organic, biodynamic family farms producing just really gorgeous kinds of food and artisanal ingredients. And I was feeling so good at making these friends and enjoying these farm-to-table meals. And even though I had my software company and we were doing well and that was running, I decided to start to do some case study research because I didn't even know what the word organic meant in the early, mid-1990s. I thought everything was organic, including petroleum. So learning about that was really fascinating. And as I was digging into this whole concept about farming, in these particular ways that were generating high yield outcomes, I started to film the stories of these family farms and these farmers and tracking the food, where it was going to schools, to elder care, to restaurants. And in that moment, we realized that we had sort of the substance of a really a nice television cooking show because I had the ingredients coming from these family farms. I had these, let's say, one to three Michelin star chefs that we were featuring. And the marriage of those things together, we started a public access TV show in the Bay Area. Originally, it was in the North Bay and 
Then we branched out to San Francisco. And in the early year or two that we were producing, we were about eight or 10 local public access TV stations. And back then, the 90s, you had about 35 channels on TV. And by law, one of them had to be a local public access cable channel. And so the odds of people actually tuning in and watching our show were really high because it was a one in 35 chance that you could land on our TV series. And it was called Organic Living. I was filming in high definition. I was using Apple Mac and Firewire and Final Cut Pro. And we were basically the Spielbergs of public access television because it was letterboxed. It was quite beautiful. Seemingly overnight, we got this demand for the show. And we started to then send these tapes out, actual video cassettes, 54 public access stations around the country. We really got the interest from some public television stations because people were producing and watching the PBS said, your show should be on my local public television station. So in 2003, we put a little bit of money into some higher production value and we did a satellite feed. And back then, that's how you could then reach out to the national kind of stream of public television stations. And I didn't know what was going to happen. I just thought, well, maybe we'll get a few stations and it'll be interesting. After the satellite feed happened, we got 62 stations that picked us up. Then we had, at that moment, the carriage, that they say, the capacity to start to bring on sponsors, because then we had actual broadcast television. The apex of the show, we had about 122 public television stations around the country reaching about 35 million homes each week. And we had a best-selling companion cookbook that I co-authored on Hachette in 2007. And we had two versions of the show. We had one show called Organic Living and the other show that was called Hippie Gourmet, just to sort of A-B test with sort of edgier and get more viewers. Hippie Gourmet for sure got more viewers because whether you like hippies or don't like hippies, people would tune in. And then learned something that people really enjoyed the show. But the Hippie Gourmet didn't do well in terms of sponsorship, of course, because not a lot of the blue chip sponsors are interested in putting their money behind that. But was a phenomenal experience for us was to be reaching people around the country with this prosaic series of farm-to-table experiences, of delicious food, of life-affirming kinds of activities that were so simple and yet so pleasurable and heartwarming. We were getting these emails and these letters from people all around the country, typically red states or Bible Belt areas, who wanted to hate the show because of the word organic or hippie or whatever. But they said to us things like, because I watched your show, I started to cook differently. And I was able to get my husband off of his medications for diabetes, for instance, or was able to bring my child back from ADD or ADHD. So all these different things were sort of happening for us that were so deep and meaningful. And it was an impactful experience for me to be able to communicate this kind of content to people. And I felt like we were really on a good path from a planetary perspective that this kind of messaging was so well-received. And then that was back in 2007. I mean, you're an entrepreneur. You keep going, you keep going. Obviously, what's happened since then? Well, I was still doing 
contract video game design and development and other kinds of work in tech because I'm married, my mind, to, to technology and nature. So there was this convergence, if you will, between digital aspects of living and also the natural aspects of living. When I had a sort of an epiphany, I guess you might want to call it, but I had come to Stanford University in 2012 after a lot of different kinds of endeavors and work. And I was on campus at Stanford involved in a project and development called the Solar Decathlon, which was a 20 university global cohort of who could build the most energy positive house. And it was a very interesting competition. And I was brought on as the organic food and living coach, if you will, and lecturer. And it was amazing, except in the first five minutes of doing the research for this smart house competition, I realized that a smart house inside of a dumb neighborhood makes absolutely no sense. And so I really began to focus on this idea of neighborhood infrastructure that could have critical life support systems of clean food, clean water, clean energy, as well as these energy positive homes. So really blessed at Stanford to be connected with these professors who agreed with my premise and were willing to stand behind me in my research initiative. And that's where I began this whole path towards getting us thinking in a way differently than traditional build and traditional neighborhoods. So right now you are, from my understanding, the first ever entrepreneur in residence at Stanford. Can you talk a little bit about that? And can you give a little bit of definition of what an entrepreneur in residence is? There was an interesting moment when I had a high paying staff position as a senior technologist and researcher at Stanford. I realized at the same time that the planet was not going in the right direction and that I had to do something. And in order to do that, I came to the conclusion that it had to be from an entrepreneurial perspective and to realize a commercial kind of endeavor that it was an impact kind of investment vehicle that would allow us to both fix the planet, but to fix it as a business case. That was really appealing. The issue at Stanford, of course, is that senior staff positions, researchers, even professors were not allowed to have commercial activities in addition to their daily academic activities. So I applied for professional leave of absence, which not a lot of people do, because who wants to give up a high-paying <laughs> position and job at Stanford? But I did it because I didn't want to lose my affiliation and my connectivity to Stanford, because it's such an incredible campus and resource that's actually doing so many things to fix our world. So. Instead, I went back into kind of this entrepreneurial mode of not taking salary from Stanford and instead taking a position as an entrepreneur in residence. And this is the first time in basically 125-year history that that title was applied to somebody in Stanford. I was working at the time with Professor Larry Leifer in the Center for Design Research, which is part of the School of Mechanical Engineering. Really started diving into this research initiative that I was self-funding. So I was putting my own money up to do these off-campus satellite prototyping of circular 
waste and food systems, things that would be connected to smart house infrastructure. And that's where that connectivity started to really take off. Now, can you give us a little bit more information about the whole connectivity of the environment? I have done a little research and I heard about the Wood Wide Web. Can you talk a little bit about this? I was deeply inspired by the work of Dr. Suzanne Simmer from the University of Vancouver in British Columbia. That's a really interesting story. She was up in the Pacific Northwest and her dog had fallen into an outhouse hole. They were feverishly trying to get the dog rescued, which they did, fortunately. And as she was down in this hole, she noticed on the side of the walls that there was this, what looked like this sort of Ethernet cabling between all of the, the trees and the bushes and the plants and under the forest floor. And she was particularly curious, where were all these connections leading from and to? She discovered what she lovingly called the Wood Wide Web instead of the World Wide Web. Essentially, her research showed that old-growth Douglas fir trees were conveying nutrients, minerals, sugar, carbon, etc., to maple seedlings several hundred meters away on the forest floor. So not a Darwinian kind of concept, but actually a beneficial collaborative economy that exists under the forest floor. The really particularly interesting thing about this is that it's a sentient mesh network that doesn't have a single brain. It's actually distributed intelligence that at the point of sensing can make decisions, but also relates information across the entire network. It's a have-need network. I was particularly fascinated by this in terms of our current economic milieu that we live in, and also could we find a way to create a digital interface between the mycelian network and new neighborhood developments in such a way that we could understand the nutritional flows of not only just food and waste, but also about energy and water and human patterns, and all of those things complementary to each other in a symbiotic way. And that was the spark for me to start to develop at least the architectural thinking, the software for a village operating system, a village OS. And that was the part of the research that we were really focusing on from this spin-off company that I had created based on my research at Stanford. So James, right now with traditional farming, are there any inefficiencies that are currently happening and are there any developments that are being created to help solve these inefficiencies in the way that we're currently humans and the environment or us and the farms are working together? Well, I can tell you that from the research that I've done and also research coming from the UN, an UNCTAD report that was quite telling in 2013, which was entitled Time to Wake Up, quite appropriate. Their findings and my findings as well were that small ag, hyper-local, organic, biodynamic, permaculture farming is the best case, the best way forward to feed 10 billion people coming to the planet or on the planet by 2050. Now, I know that sounds sort of antithetical to the current kind of big ag that's going on right now. But the truth is that we need to be restorative in what we're doing in terms of our food system. 
and we need to be reducing our carbon footprint down to almost zero that we possibly can. We also need to be farming in a non-till soil environment, which means that you're not kind of hoeing the ground and constantly turning and disrupting that very precious mycelium network that is growing underneath, connecting all those different cultivars. And when you have that mycelium network, what's amazing is that when an insect, when a pest bites the leaf of a connected cultivar in the farm, its saliva is detected throughout the whole network. And all of a sudden, I call it the forest Wi-Fi, because then they start to release pheromones. And those pheromones attract particular kinds of birds and wasps that go right after those pests. So in other words, there's this network that wants to be self-healing if we just give it a chance to. And that's really the point about a different kind of farming. It's a different kind of economic model also if you are creating an overabundance of artisanal ingredients that's diverse as a full menu for neighborhoods and communities, which is how we used to be up until about 1950 around the world. There's a fantastic Rockefeller Foundation report on this, that up until 1950, 75% of humanity lived in small, self-sustaining communities, which meant that they were producing what they needed for themselves and their families, overproducing other interesting biodiverse ingredients, and then going into the town square, the piazza, to then barter or sell whatever they had, and then exchanging what other people were growing or other people were bringing, like fish or meat or other kinds of things. And that's really, from our perspective, the way forward. So it's a combination of higher efficiency yield that's hyper-local and more dense, and we would argue more bioavailable nutrition. So it is providing more nutrients to people as they're eating it because of the fact that it it doesn't have to travel and have all the caloric impact taken away from it as it's going hundreds of miles or thousands of miles. So these cities of the future, what type of technology right now is being used to design them? Is it just being designed on a computer or how's it being done? A lot of it's still sort of traditional thinking in terms of master planning and design thinking. A lot of the rules, unfortunately, on the books were put there about 150 years ago by these big business interests, district scale, electric, heat, water, waste, and of course, big agriculture as well, that those rules are put in place to create a kind of dependency. And that dependency, of course, there's security with that dependency, but there's also a kind of brittle aspect to it, meaning that when it breaks, it breaks badly, and it breaks for a lot of people, and it's a domino effect. That's why, for instance, if a transformer goes out, it takes out an entire neighborhood or entire district uh, or a city, or sometimes the eastern seaboard can go out from a very small kind of falling of a tree across a certain kind of power line. And our perspective is designing in a way for decentralized, eventually islanded and off-grid capacity, not just in power, but also in water and in circular waste systems and also in producing food. So in designing these communities, part of our village operating system software is a digital twin. It's this concept of using artificial intelligence and machine learning to model an optimized neighborhood development where 
those kinds of SimCity toggles, if you will, how much housing versus how much open space and regenerative capability can be put on a particular piece of land or area, that that then starts to put out these several different kinds of models for municipalities and for landowners and for banks and other folks to really get and understand what the next steps are. So we really feel like we're at the forefront of the next generation of changing the rules for how these kinds of communities can get built in a fast-track, permitted way. So how will IoT Internet of Things, how will those devices play a part in cities of the future? Well, there's some fantastic technologies out there. Our main goal really is as follows. It's resiliency using regenerative and restorative mechanisms. There's a lot of technology out there that is a lot of bells and whistles, and it's intended to be a bit confusing and sort of too much going on that's about technology. And we view technology quite differently. It really has to be a means to an end. And from our perspective, the best technology is the kind of pieces that you don't even know there, but are just making your life better. And that's really the concept, is that there's kinds of technologies, whether it's in power generation and microgrid storage and sharing of power across neighbors, or whether it's in clean water technology or clean food or circular waste systems, that all of those pieces are humming along in the same way that when you go to your kitchen or you go into your bedroom and you turn the light on or you turn the faucet on, everything just works. It's a means to an end, in other words. Except with us, our system is off-grid. It's decentralized. So it's reliable, but it's reliable right there in the context of your own neighborhood and your community. Right there, you talked about a grid system, a renewable waste system. Can you go in a little more detail about what each of these systems are? There's a lot of technologies that are out there right now that are bulletproof, that work really well, that are siloed, meaning that they do what they do and they stand alone, whether it's a water system, energy system, waste system, etc. We're looking at this whole idea of integrating, being able to have a system that can oversee and learn where those different previously siloed pieces can now communicate with each other and understand the relationship in a symbiotic mycelian network kind of way and have need kind of network, if you will. And that's terribly exciting, we think, for the future of living in communities where technology is supporting our thriving. Can these micro cities be adopted easily for emerging countries, such as maybe in, in India or in Africa, where maybe there's really no infrastructure right now at all? So the goal has always been about the developing world, because that's where the next two to three billion people are coming to the planet in 20 years, 25 years. And as these people move, especially into the middle class, which is what's expected, several hundred million people moving to the middle class, if those folks want what we have now in terms of suburbs, the planet is going to die. In terms of car culture, waste producing, energy sucking neighborhoods, we're not having much hope, to be honest. So absolutely. The goal is to 
take the technology for a Northern European context, North American context, developed economic areas, bring it to fruition, proving the economic model, and then do it stand for what's called design for extreme affordability. Take all of that and take it down to its basic components that could be then expressed across the global south. So rural India, ASEAN, sub-Saharan Africa. The goal as well is that when people see that the model is the moniker for the way the new middle class wants to live in Europe and the US, that then it's something that they aspire to, as opposed to starting in the global south, where typically the folks there would not trust something just coming new to them in that way. They'd want to know, for instance, like the Tesla, that it's the aspirational vehicle of the middle class. Why not then also consider the same kind of Elon Musk marketing plan for the rest of the planet around housing? Now, these houses in these emergent areas, will they be designed also for autonomous cars and autonomous vehicles to be used in these facilities? Or will it just be, here's a grid, here's some power, and now we're farming and there's not those roads, those connections? I'm just trying to visualize it. Essentially, it's the subdivision of the future. And subdivision of the future does not require garages or driveways. Because within the next few years, some people say five years, some people say 10 years, somewhere in that range, we're going to have level five autonomous transit. It's not only going to be cars, it's going to be drones, it's going to be drone taxis, there's going to be all kinds of automated delivery systems, there's going to be this bifurcation between human and pet travel versus goods and services travel. And that's going to really change the nature of how we live in relationship and neighborhoods. The key thing from our perspective is bikeable, walkable, park-like setting environments that are completely edible from one end of a neighborhood to the next. Fruit trees, nut trees, berry bushes, herbs, medicinals, all kinds of different soil-based farming, vertical farming, all these different kinds of aspects that is about life-affirming abundance. And that connectivity has then the peripheral electric vehicle parking that can be both storage system, but also charging those electric vehicles, areas for and places where drone deliveries can happen or drone taxis can happen. And through that lens, do we really need to be living in a city so much anymore? Can we start to relieve some of the pressure from these mega cities that are typically coastal and quite in danger, we would say. So in that regard, being able to live further and further away from cities where there's plenty of land, cheap land, actually, that can then provide for and support human living in such a way that maybe they don't have to commute as much or even at all. And also the nature of work is changing. We know from an Oxford study that came out last year, that in 20 years, and I think it's going to be less than this, 47% of all employment will not exist anymore. And it's not going to come back as something else. It's not going to be the person who used to make horse and buggy system connect to all of a sudden have a job working in an automotive factory. It's going to be quite different. We're going to have even white collar jobs 
that will be replaced by artificial intelligence. There's ML machine learning AI lawyers right now, for instance, spitting out just hundreds of thousands of contract work on a daily basis. And so there's certain things, in other words, that's going to reduce the need for employment. And yet at the same time, our current economic system isn't preparing for this. So we really need a different approach in how we imagine how we're going to live in neighborhoods that could be the basis of self-sufficiency, along with some kind of universal basic income, potentially. And in that way, we can start to create new economic models that can start to flourish outside of cities in these more peri-urban or rural areas. Not to go off topic, but I'm curious to go into more detail about this if possible. How do you vision the economies of the future if 40% are displaced workers? Exactly. There's a huge delta right now in economic inequality in the world, typically around housing, also with access to clean water, clean food, renewable energy, and hygiene. That delta is increasing. It's not decreasing. And what happens, mathematically speaking, there's a calculation from NASA that came out a few years ago called the Handy Model, and that predicts global civilization collapse based on these very same indicators. So we should start, I would hope, quickly to start thinking differently about how we can live. I'm not speaking about one sort of dogmatic kind of economic system versus another, whether it's socialism or capitalism, these kinds of things, but rather I would call it compassionism. I would call it a kind of mechanism that allows for people to have their basic Maslow hierarchical needs met. And now to that, I would add typically good Wi-Fi and espresso. Those are my particular Maslow hierarchical needs. But if you have those needs met, you're living in with dignity in an energy positive home that's generating more power than your family needs each month to run. You have delicious, healthy food at your doorstep. That's part of a program that's feeding you and your family in a continuous way and giving you food safety and security, primarily. Clean water, hygiene, all those things. When you have those met, then you don't need a lot more capacity to come from a universal basic income amount to be able to start to think big thoughts of what can I do to make a difference? What can we do in a neighborhood, in a community do? Maker movement, DIY, 3D printing, new economic models with software and technology, and also low-tech systems that we can devise. So in other words, there's a bright future. It's not dystopic. We have a bright future when we think in a way that is about diffusing this incredible tension that we're living under right now around the world. It's not just here in the U.S., it's in Europe. It's on every corner of the planet, essentially. People are living under this kind of stress. And it's going to get worse unless we start to really address it. And in these cities of the future, these villages of the future, I'm trying to see what they're going to be doing with their time all day if they don't have those jobs, if they've been replaced. It sounds like things are self-sustainable. This sounds pretty amazing almost. What are people doing? Well, let me just clarify. There's no such thing as utopia. 
Okay, we understand that. Human nature, there's good people, there's bad people, there's greed, there's avarice, there's all these different things that people have, and it's part of our nature as a species. At the same time, there have been really good tests, for instance, in Finland about universal basic income for, I think, a two-year research program that they did where they gave each family, instead of a welfare payment, they gave them a certain amount of basic income per month. And it was really interesting to see that people weren't just sort of sitting at home watching football bubbling hookah. They were actually learning and improving themselves and trying to find themselves in this next era of culture and humanity and technology. In other words, that the system was there to support them in a way that they could find new ways forward. And that's really where I think this is going to lead. I really do. And these cities in the future, are they siloed or is there communication going on between them? Because I would think that a city in the U.S. wouldn't be the same city built in Sub-Saharan Africa. Look, you're absolutely right. I mean, first of all, I'd like to just say that I'm more of a village, town, neighborhood person. That A town is built by a series of villages and a village is built by a series of, of neighborhoods. And that those neighborhoods themselves, each one of them and each village is redundant and resilient with its own capacity and capabilities. That's the first thing. The second, though, is that doesn't mean they're gated. In fact, it's the opposite. They're more like university campuses. The best eco-villages in the world have ebb and flow of people coming from all around the world, taking classes, teaching classes, learning, doing research. There's this wonderful opportunity to look at creating these sort of off-grid neighborhoods that are lily pads of connectivity. And that's also part of the village operating system software model which is that these communities are interconnected and can improve each other autonomously by climate zone. That's a first of its kind. Can you talk more about the communication among these villages? What type of information is being passed back and forth? How is it being done? Well, from a technological perspective, it's primarily infrastructure, food, water, energy, waste, critical life support systems, neighborhood scale, that are being optimized and learning from each other in similar climate zones. That's kind of the Buckminster Fuller perspective on looking at the world from a resource-driven framework, as opposed to sort of arbitrary, capricious lines drawn on maps. So border-free, in other words, sharing of data between neighborhoods. The neighborhoods themselves are talking to each other from an infrastructure perspective. And then there's the sociological, anthropological kind of content and culture, expressions of life-affirming kinds of abilities, things that people have, are doing that could be really interesting as the social glue, if you will, to help each of these kinds of communities in similar cultural aspect areas to build and have stronger ties with each other internally to their neighborhoods, but also externally to other neighborhoods and other communities. So, for instance, it's already proven that a successful eco-village of even just 100 homes has a 25-kilometer public goodwill radius that surrounds it because it's overproducing these beautiful artisanal ingredients, creating 
restorative ecology around it, so park-like settings. It's drawing in the neighbors and the people in such a way that they're engaged in community activities and all different kinds of things that are happening there. And that's a pretty good radius. Normal neighborhoods are the opposite. They are sort of self-interested and isolated, even though they seem to be connected by roads and by Wi-Fi and all these other kinds of networks. The truth is that the typical kind of architecture that you see even is that the garage faces the street, that people, before they even get to their house, the garage door is opening. As they pull in, there's a seamless moment where the garage door is closing right behind them, and then they're in. They're done. They don't want any kind of connectivity with anybody else or anyone else in that area. So we see a lot of opportunity to reimagine communities where just physically and viscerally people have more opportunities to connect with each other. And this also applies especially to aging. This whole idea of senior living or assisted living for us is perverse because we want to see a world where as people get older, their knowledge, their wisdom can be imparted to the youngest people living in the community. And that the youngest people's energy and enthusiasm can be infectious to those people who are older and that they feel young again. To be perfectly honest, when you're born in a community where when you go to the community center and you see these notices on the wall of birth notices, birthdays, graduations, life celebrations, anniversaries, and then you also see elder care, hospice care, and death notices, that you see on one board a story arc of life where you fit in. You're not separate. You're not a pariah because you have small children, and you're not garbage when you get older. That's really a a very simple kind of solution that we can answer for by how we design and develop neighborhoods going forward in the future. Speaking of social dynamics and social structure, I'm kind of curious about taxes in the future. I know that's probably a taboo topic, but I got to ask, what's going to happen if you're supplying your own energy, if you're pretty self-sufficient? I think it's a really amazing question, actually. And one of the things that thought process has gone into is creating a system where government can be creating the framework digitally for fast-track permitting of off-grid decentralized neighborhoods. And because the government is involved in establishing those new rules to create those new communities, because of the connectivity in that regard, they don't lose tax base. They still have that kind of relationship that people understand that they wouldn't be living in a safe, secure, decentralized community if it wasn't for that very government that was allowing them and providing that kind of framework for them to do it. So we, in other words, see the village operating system software as an opportunity to synapse, to remove the hurdles, in other words, for government to be able to create these communities, but also where it's not libertarian, it's not seasteading or something off away from government, but actually that taxation can happen, but people understand how and why they're being taxed. And right now there's a ton of technology being developed for 3D printed houses. I'm guessing some of this will be utilized in these villages of the future. Can you talk a little bit about that current technology? 
There's a lot of movement right now in 3D extrusion. In the combination, there's also a lot of movement, fortunately, in what we call prefab controlled built environment construction. Essentially, it's a warehouse environment, similar to the Henry Ford days of the Model A or the Model T coming off an assembly line. If you can imagine these wall units, everything is built in. They're made of, say, beautiful, circular, sustainable hardwood pine, for instance, and glass. And those wall units are the components of a house or an apartment building. But everything's built in, in the warehouse. So wiring, plumbing, HVAC, heating, air conditioning, glazing, lighting, sensors, all of that in each component. And then it gets trucked right to location and snaps together like Lego. Through this mechanism, we've been able to see a savings of about 35% less construction waste, which is incredible. Imagine one third of a new house, essentially, going into a dumpster. It makes no sense, environmentally speaking, economically speaking, etc. Also, we've seen that it saves almost one-fifth the labor because these components come to site and you don't have to have the same kind of journeyman located for so long on a construction site. Most importantly, a home can go up in two or three days and be moving ready. It's pretty incredible that way. So on the 3D extrusion side, this idea of taking concrete, we would argue hempcrete, and hempcrete is a new kind of environmentally friendly concrete because it uses hemp, industrial hemp, along with lime and water. Those three ingredients no longer need sand, in other words. The hemp is a weed, and it has amazing tensile strength. It is a system that is able to be extruded by these robots. So you can create 3D printed structures within about 24 hours. A house can then, after a few days, the hempcrete cures, and then you can put the finishings in, and within about a week or so, families can move in. And those homes can sell for less than $5,000 each. That's, for us, the most exciting aspect for creating neighborhoods in the Global South, that robots can come use earthen materials, locally sourced materials, and be creating these villages and these neighborhoods in the span of a few weeks. So we've talked about a ton of things. How do you see all this playing out in the next 10 years? What's your vision? Well, quite simply, we know one thing. It's not a matter of technology anymore. It's a matter of money and political will. And what's interesting is when you have the money and enough of it, political will usually a little bit better. Not always, but most of the time. So primarily, our hope is that this 11 trillion plus US dollars that's coming out of fossil fuel investments, that's divesting, whole countries are divesting right now, Norway, Ireland, University of California, God love them. And there's a lot of money now that can be applied to creating the future neighborhoods that answer critical housing shortages and also address almost all the 17 sustainable development goals baked into one kind of master plan thinking. The future we see in the next five to 10 years is a Marshall Plan, if you will, to take these kinds of funds and apply it to residential regenerative real estate funds and a green bond 
that can allow for these communities to be built rapidly and at scale. Using prefab manufacturing, 3D printing, and integrating all those technologies in such a way that they are rolling out new neighborhoods to meet the needs of social, affordable, middle class housing in a way that is restorative and regenerative and life supporting and life affirming. That's the goal. There's a lot of talk about colonizing Mars. It's in the news, Elon Musk all the time. Is this type of technology able to be applied to? space exploration, space colonization. How does this all work? Absolutely. So I'm a senior fellow at NASA Ames Research Center and part of a consortium of university and technology colleagues there. And albeit I'm a bit of a pain in their ass because I'm a terrestrial guy (laughs) more than extraplanetary guy. But what we're doing with Regen Villages is absolutely applicable to what Elon Musk wants to do on Mars and what other folks are trying to do on the moon, we feel like we can do both. I'm a big Elon fanboy, let me just put it out there. He wants to see a million people by 2050 living full-time on Mars. And I think that's an incredible aspiration. At the same time, there's 10 billion people at that moment who are going to be living here on Earth. Our solution is to create the mechanisms that would support what Elon Musk is doing on Mars for those 1 million happy folks, but that the other 10 billion people here on Earth have what they need and that their needs are met and that we have the ability to sustain and support that kind of population here on Earth. And it's completely possible. We know that it is. And James, we've talked so much about all this technology, but we haven't talked yet about Regen Villages and your company. Can you talk a little bit about what Regen Villages is and what you're going to do in the next year or two? Sure. Regen Villages is a company that I founded in 2016 based on the research that I had been doing at Stanford plus 15 years prior to that, case study research, really about healthy, happy living. And Regen Villages is a technology company, it's a software company building the tools and technologies for regenerative, resilient, self-reliant neighborhood developments. And we're also a residential development company. So we wear two hats, asset-backed real estate development, but also that there's a software stack and that the software stack can be used by other developers, constructors, communities, and yes, governments around the world going forward. So the next couple of years for us are really exciting. So if anyone wants to find out more information or get in contact with you, what's the best way to go about it? Well, Regen, R-E-G-E-N, which is for regenerative, regenvillages.com, info at regenvillages.com. That's the best way, I would say. James, I want to thank you for taking the time today to be on Silicon Valley. And for our listeners, please write a review on iTunes, whatever podcast platform you're using to listen to this. And those reviews encourage us to make more amazing episodes such as the one you listened to today. And we look forward to providing a new episode next week. James, once again, thank you for your time today. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to the Silicon Valley Podcast. To access our resources, visit us at thesiliconvalleypodcast.com and follow our host on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn at Sean Flynn SV. 
This show is for entertainment purposes only and is licensed by the Investors Podcast Network. Before making any decisions, consult a professional.